Good morning. <clears throat> um, it's really a blessing to be here this morning with you all again to sing such great songs and such read such wonderful passages of scripture to give praise and glory and honor to God who alone is worthy of such praise and glory and honor. Um, hope you all ate breakfast this morning because we have a lot to cover today. <laughs> Though the verses are few, the implications are rather many and far-reaching. Um, to those men who have had the opportunity to join us on Thursday nights, some of what we're going to discuss today is going to sound familiar, but uh, I hope this morning that this will be a refreshing and encouraging reminder to you of the incredibly important issues that Paul addresses in this letter and that Paul directly addresses in this passage. And so for the sake of those who have not had the opportunity to join us, we will be spending some time this morning before jumping in directly to the passage itself, looking at the context, because as we know, the context is incredibly important in our seeking to understand what God has for us in his word. So again, our, our, our verses in our, that we're going to be looking at this morning are Galatians 3, verses 19 through 22. But before we get there, let's, let's look at the context of the book, or rather the letter of Galatians. So the setting for us this morning is the region of Galatia. Um, you can turn to the back of your Bible and see where that is exactly on a map. Uh, the year is somewhere between 49 and 55 A.D. Uh, this is either amid Paul's first or second missionary journey to the regions that have not heard the gospel. But nevertheless, this letter was written very shortly after Paul had left the region of Galatia and he had gotten word that there was a problem in the Galatian church, that the Galatian church was facing an issue of incredible importance and as such he was prompted to write a letter to them to correct them. And so we see beginning in chapter 1 Paul greets them and then almost immediately establishes that there's a problem in their church in Galatia. Paul scolds them for turning away by what he says they have done. They have turned away to a different gospel. Um, and this is a pretty big accusation, right? How has the Galatian church turned away to a different gospel? Well, we know from the rest of the context of the letter that there are people, Judaizers, to be clear, who are infiltrating the church and influencing the people to turn away from the gospel and be circumcised in order that they be Christian. These people are telling these believers who are Gentiles, primarily in the Galatian church, that in order for them to be Christian, in order for them to be saved, that they need to be circumcised. And this doesn't sound like a very big deal, but it it is. It's incredibly important because essentially what these Judaizers and these people who are influencing these believers are doing is they are subjecting these believers to the law 
of the Old Testament, the law that God gave to Moses. They're telling these people that in order for them to be Christians, they need to live out and live by the law of the Old Testament. And so finishing or continuing on throughout the rest of this chapter in chapter 2, Paul then takes a turn to establish his apostolic authority, right? The authority that he has directly from Jesus Christ himself to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. We all remember Paul's encounter with Jesus himself on his road to Damascus, which changed his life. And from that day on, Jesus ordained that Paul be the one to proclaim and bring the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter was the one who was to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. Paul was the one whom God ordained to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul does this. He establishes, again, his authority to implore this church in Galatia that they listen to him, that they remember his story and what he's told them so that they would hear his words and turn again away from this false gospel to the one true gospel, the one true gospel which he proclaimed to them before. And this all builds up into Paul's theme statement in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verses 15. Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And he continues in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so, Paul establishes here, right before he launches into his argument and explanation of the law, that Christians, we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And this is incredibly important for us to understand, as this is the foundation of Paul's argument, and it is ultimately that which he wants these Galatian people to see and to understand. And so after this, Paul then launches into a meticulously thought-out argument establishing that this idea, which he has just stated, faith alone and Christ alone, has been the method by which people have attained salvation for all time, even in the Old Testament. He, he uses biblical theology to, to show that even those under the law in the Old Testament were never justified by the law, but by trusting in God to come through on His promises. By faith, they were saved. So, that brings us to our passage, <clears throat> finally, in chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. So, read with me, if you will, chapter 3, verses 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture, the Scripture, imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so, Paul begins this passage this morning with a question, and from the context, this question uh, kind of makes sense. As, as we've discussed, Paul has just torn apart any idea that people in the Old Testament were justified by the law, but, but they were justified by belief and faith in God coming through on His promises. And so, if that's the case, if even those who were under the law were not justified by the law, then... Why did God give the law? What's the point of the law if it was not to be a method of justification or a method for people to obtain righteousness? Why would God give the law if this wasn't the purpose? And Paul answers this fairly succinctly, and he says, first and foremost, it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Now, this is a fairly loaded statement, so we're going to be spending a little bit of time unpacking or uh, discussing what Paul is talking about when he says that the law was added because of transgressions. You see, what, what Paul means when he says that the law was added because of transgressions, he more labors on in the book of Romans, but we don't have time to go through the entire book of Romans to understand <laughs> what he's saying, unfortunately. So we're going we're gonna to quickly go through what Paul means when he says it was added because of transgressions. And see, we know what Paul is saying here because of what he says in Galatians is that the law was given because of sin. And we know from Romans that the few things, there's a few things that the law does for us. First of all, it defines sin for us. It defines what exactly sin is. See, the law is a reflection of the holiness of God, and as such, we see all those things which are adverse to God and His character. So, from the law, we have a clear picture of what exactly sin is. And then what the law then does from that point is it indeed shows us what sin is, and then it shows us in our hearts that sin exists there. That sin that the law defines has overtaken the natural human heart. And it is the natural human heart that is adverse to God. What the law essentially does is it, it shows the people that they themselves are unrighteous where God is righteous. And you see, this is the, the big problem with 
humanity. It's the big problem with our hearts is, is that we have a God who is righteous and just, and we ourselves are both unrighteous and unjust. You see, the law exposes in us that depravity, that wickedness that our hearts are naturally inclined to. See, everywhere where the law tells us to do one thing, we, through fleshly and sinful desires, do the opposite. It reveals in us the sin that lies within our hearts that is utterly adverse to God. And then also, one thing, that the other thing that the law does is it shows us that we cannot by it be justified. That through works and through actions, we ourselves can never be made righteous. Paul says in chapter 2 of Romans, starting in verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews who were given the law any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And in the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And so what the law does is it exposes this in us. It exposes and shows us how we are sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God for which we were made to reflect. We ourselves have turned from God and by no works of our own are we able to make ourselves righteous again. We can strive and work for the rest of our lives, but nothing that we can do can ever restore us or bring us back to that point of righteousness before a holy and just God. See, all have sinned and since God is just, all deserve the righteous punishment for that sin, which is His eternal wrath. And so, what the law shows in us is our brokenness and our inability to achieve that which we so desire, which is reconciliation to God. But God in the Old Testament, even beginning in Genesis, made a promise to us. He made a promise to His people. God made a promise that He would restore us. That He would crush the head of the serpent. That He would reconcile us to Himself. Not that we would make this leap, that we would bridge this gap, but that He would do it. And in fact, He did. You see, where everywhere that we fall short, God Himself has 
restored us. But how? How did God restore us? See, God made the promise and He fulfilled His promise and came through on His promise by sending to earth and giving us His only Son, Jesus, who was born under the law of born of Mary, fully man. But this man, Jesus Christ, everywhere that we fell short, He did not. Where we are tempted the same as He was, He did not sin. Jesus Christ was righteous and holy everywhere that we are sinful and unholy. And this Jesus, this Jesus what he did is he lived the perfect life that we cannot and have not lived. And then after living that perfect life that we have not and cannot live, he then, for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross and endured upon himself the wrath of God that we deserved. The wrath of God that was due to us, Jesus took upon Himself that full cup that we deserved. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin. He took upon Himself the sin of us, His people, His church, and endured that Wrath and separation from God, which we were set to endure. And He did this out of love for us and out of joy. The joy that would overcome Him by being reconciled to us and for the glory of His name and for the glory of God our Father. Jesus Christ did all that we cannot and have not done and died for our sins. And on the third day, He rose again, overcoming the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father that we too, if we believe in His work, repent of our sins and turn to Him for our soul justification and our soul righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone, we too will be saved from our sins and resurrected with Him on the last day. Amen. And this is the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians. This is the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them, to the Gentiles in the church of Galatia. And so, it makes sense then, Paul's astonishment that he speaks of in the beginning of this letter. And his utter amazement at this that the Gentiles have begun to believe. They have turned away from this and believed something different. They've believed that something that they could do could make them righteous and holy before God. And you see, the issue with this, the reason that this is so bad, to say that by circumcision, 
you are a Christian and by circumcision you are righteous is that you are adding to the finished work of Christ. You are looking to Christ on the cross and saying, you and your sacrifice, your blood was not enough to pay for my sins. But I need to do something. I need to add to it that I might be a Christian, that I might be saved and reconciled to you. And so when Paul says it was added because of transgressions, what Paul is telling us is that the point of the law was never to justify us and make us righteous, but it was to show us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. So Paul says, why then the law was added because of transgressions? So the purpose of the law we see here was not to save us, but it was to indeed point us to Christ. And so we see that by the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham, we are, we are saved because for, through the law, the inheritance does not come. The inheritance that we have in Christ and our salvation does not come by the law, but it comes by the promise that God gave to Abraham. And so we see that the law is inferior to the promises because its purpose was not to save us. But Paul continues and he says then following this that the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And so in addition to the law pointing us to Christ, we now see that the law was ever only meant to be in place over us until Christ comes, until that faith in Christ. Again, in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 4, Paul says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has raised you from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, for all of us who have believed in Christ, we have been crucified with Christ. We have been baptized into His death and resurrection, and through that we are born again as new believers, no longer under the yoke of the law to strive and live out all our days in an attempt to achieve some righteousness, but indeed we live our life by the law of grace from Christ, whom we now serve by the Spirit and through the Spirit in which we now walk. 
And so now we see our righteousness, even as believers, because indeed Paul is talking to believers in this Galatian church, even as believers, we do not obtain any righteousness or gain any of the righteousness that we have from Christ. We don't pay back the righteousness and for the work that Christ has done on the cross, but we live by the Spirit of Christ in us, who lives through us, And by the Spirit, we put to death those deeds of the flesh for the glory of God. So the law we see now was temporary in this sense, making it, yet again, inferior to the promises which were and are eternal and final. So we've seen now Paul is establishing a pattern of the law being inferior to those promises which God made to Abraham. It was inferior because of its purpose and it was inferior because it was temporary and because of its temporal nature and its nature to guard us only until Christ. But Paul again continues in his explanation of why then the law and he says After stating this, he says, Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So, again, we're going to see here now, again, that the law is inferior, not only because of its purpose and its nature, but it is inferior because of its intermediaries. You see, the law was given through angels to Moses, and then finally to Israel. There were multiple intermediaries before the law finally made it to Israel, God's people. And we see this in Deuteronomy and Acts 7. Stephen speaks of this, of the angels who delivered the law. And in Hebrews, we see this of the angels who delivered the law to Moses, who mediated this covenant to the people of Israel. Both of these being created beings, the angels who delivered the law, and Moses who mediated the law between the angels who delivered it from God and the people of Israel. But the promise, see, where the promise was different, where the promise stood apart from the law was that it came not through created beings, being angels or Moses as a mediator, but it was mediated and it was given by God directly to Abraham. And so where the law was given and was established through many mediators, the promise came directly from God himself to Abraham. And this makes the law that much more glorious and and gracious because it came directly from God to Abraham. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, starting in verses 13, the author says this about the the promise given to Abraham. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. This Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, the promises are so great because God himself mediated the promise to Abraham. God himself swore by himself that the promises would come true. And indeed, we see that God himself gives each and every one of the promises of the Bible. God himself fulfilled the promises that he gave through the Old Testament. He fulfilled these promises by giving his only son to us, who was God in the flesh, to reconcile us to himself. R.C. Sproul says this about this covenant that God made with Abraham. He says, God's covenant with Abraham, because it did not involve a merely human mediator, demonstrates the sovereignty and the unity of God more perfectly than the covenant at Mount Sinai. And so then this next verse makes all that much more sense. In verse 20, Paul says, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. We again must remember who exactly Paul is speaking to here. He's speaking to Gentiles who themselves are undoubtedly more familiar with polytheism than they are with monotheism, than they are with familiar, they're more familiar with many gods than they are with just one God. And so Paul needs them to understand that though God mediated the promise to Abraham and though a mediator implies more than one and though God himself came in the flesh for us, God is one. And so we see now that the the law is inferior to the promises because of its purpose, because of its nature, and because of its many intermediaries. Mediators. And so if you've listened and you've heard and understood, then this next next question kind of seems out of place. And Paul then asks, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And so that kind of Seems like a weird question to ask, because as Paul has just said, the law was added because of transgressions to reveal us our sins. So how then could the law be contrary to the promises of God? And yet this is entirely Paul's point in asking this question. He responds with, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You see, it was a common understanding in the times of the Old Testament and indeed leading up to Christ himself that the law was a method of justification and that the law was given so that people could be made righteous by it and that the law was given to somehow supplement some some bit of the promise that was not complete to add to the promise but it was not. And if indeed this was the purpose of the law, then yes, of course, the law would be contrary to the promises of God. 
if we were able to obtain justification by the law, then the law would certainly be contrary to these promises. Paul continues and he says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You see, the law can't, it cannot be contrary to the promises of God because the law was never meant to justify us. The law, again, was meant to reveal to us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And as such, the law imprisoned us under our sinfulness so that only by faith in Christ might the promises that were given to Abraham be received to all of those who believe. See, there was no person in the Old Testament who ever lived perfectly by the law for their justification and righteousness, but it was even Abraham who believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Even Abraham was justified by faith. And this is incredibly important to understand that there's no work that we do to obtain righteousness and to obtain our justification. Even as Christians, there's nothing that we do to add to the finished work of Christ. Because as Paul said in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, if we think that we can add to the finished work of Christ, if we think that we obtain righteousness and justification by any work that we do, then there was no purpose in the death of Christ. And indeed, there was purpose in the death of Christ. Christ did not come to die on the cross and to suffer for no purpose, but he, he came and suffered on the cross that we might know the Father and that we might be reconciled to Him. And that by faith, we would stand guiltless before Him on the day of judgment because we have believed and been washed clean and our sins have been paid for by the death of Christ on the cross. So, what does this have to do with us, though? What does all this, what does all this mean for us 2,000 some odd years later, thereabouts? What does this what can we gain from this? Why, why is this important for us now? Well, it's incredibly important because this sin, this false gospel, has not gone away. But throughout the ages, it has reared its ugly head in the church to bewitch believers into believing that they must do something to be justified and made righteous before God. That they must somehow add to the finished work of Christ. And this, this prompted 200 years ago the reformers to cry the things that they cried, the five souls, that 
We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Because this lie had bewitched and turned many to believe that their justification came by some work that they did. This works-based gospel had again infiltrated the church to the point of turning those away to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, but these believers had been bewitched. And so it is vitally important for us today to remember these things because subtly around us there are yet today churches who while they may not say these things, imply and members of these churches who believe a version of this false gospel. There are people in our world today who think that because they were born in the South and they were born in a Christian church that because of that, they're fine. That because of that, because they've gone to church once a week for most of their lives and because they've prayed a special prayer, said some empty words and maybe even tithed that they're fine. And this bewitching lie has led many astray to believe that they're Christians and that they're okay because they have done some work. And this is simply not the truth. Because as Paul has just explained, if, if we work for our salvation, then indeed we have no salvation. But again, what does this have to do with us here at Sovereign Grace Church? Right, We are a reformed church in Statesboro, Georgia, right? We know these things. We stand on these truths. We cry with the reformers, the five solas. Don't we know these things? Aren't we fine because we ourselves have understood these truths? But again, this lie, this bewitching lie can rear its head in yet another way for even us here at Sovereign Grace Church. We ourselves are not immune to this lie. See, even if we here at Sovereign Grace Church, though we know these things, if we cling to our knowledge of them for our justification, if we look at others and we say, I'm good and I'm fine because I go to the best church in Statesboro, If we believe that we're good and okay just because we come to church here, then we've fallen again to that same bewitchment that befell the church in Galatia. You see, again, even for us, we're not saved because we go to church at Sovereign Grace Church, but we're saved by the blood and work of Christ alone. It was atoned for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and by his finished work, we now walk 
by the Spirit. And in addition to that, knowledge of doctrine and knowledge of the Bible also doesn't save us. Though it leads us to our understanding of true salvation. J.I. Packer says this in his book, in the introduction to his book, Knowing God. A very powerful statement. He says, for the fact that we have to face is this. That if we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it's bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. First, Paul told the conceited Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So to be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself, to approach Bible study with no higher motive than to desire to know all the answers is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. We need to guard our hearts against it, against such an attitude, and pray to be kept from it. You see, because it's not our knowledge of these things that save us, but our knowledge that points us to the one who saves us. It's not bad to pursue theological knowledge. Indeed, we, we commend theological knowledge. We, we, we pursue it with gusto and with our, all of our hearts. But we pursue this theological knowledge that we might cling to the cross of Christ and that we might remember that it is by Jesus Christ's finished work alone that we obtain justification. So it becomes all the more necessary for us in these moments when we have somehow been bewitched by the lie that we do anything for our justification instead of walking by the Spirit if we again turn and walk in the flesh for our righteousness, then it becomes all the more necessary for us to turn and repent and believe again in the finished work of Jesus Christ for our justification, to which we add nothing. And this is our prayer that we, we like the Galatian church, cling to these promises and that Christ in these moments that God in these moments would discipline us and bring us back again to these truths through his sovereignty and his love for us as he has promised to us that he God who started a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ you pray with me Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day and thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather as your people, your church, to worship together, to praise you for your word and your finished work. Thank you for allowing us to explore your word and allowing us to 
reap from it by the Holy Spirit joy and peace in the knowledge of the finished work of Christ. And we give you the utmost praise for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask you to protect us, your people, from this bewitchment and misunderstanding, the same bewitchment and misunderstanding that befell the Galatian church, whether it be through pride in our position or any other sin, I ask that you lead us away and boast only in the cross of Christ. Lead us away from self-righteousness and discipline us that we would not turn away from the only gospel delivered to us once and for all by the work of Christ. So, Father, forgive us for this pride and self-deceit. And as you've promised, Father, I ask that you finish and bring to completion the work he started in us. And I ask that you send your Son again soon. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.